you have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 1 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Edgar Kerrett. Hello. Hello, is this Edgar Kerrett? Yes, and not his mother. Oh, it was wonderful. I just called the number you gave me, yes. and, <laughs> and I reached, and I wasn't sure. Was it your mother? Was it your wife? It sounded more like your mother. It was wonderful to talk to her, and she seemed very anxious that I wasn't reaching you. I know. Uh, uh, she called me, and I emailed you now that it was a telecommunication Freudian slip. Uh, it's wonderful. Does this happen to you quite often? No, no, because nobody asked me for my landline. When you ask for the landline, the two, the only two numbers I remember by heart is my landline and my parents' had a landline because this is where I grew up. Right. So I wrote down, you know, the the number that I remembered, which was there. I think it's wonderful that you put me you put me in touch with your mother, uh, thinking that I was going to call you. What do you think this might mean? That I just wanted to know if my mother approves of our relationship. What do you think? I, I think she'll, she'll, she'd like to. She said uh, that, uh, that is a, a gentleman had called and that he had very good manners. Well, you know, I, 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 I could feel, Edgar, her anxiety. Um, she was anxious that you had an appointment somewhere, uh, namely there, I thought, because I hadn't figured out that I was calling your mother when indeed I thought I was calling you. And she, she felt, I could tell, she, she said, but I, I, I don't know where he is, but, but let me find out. And then I said, well, well, thank you. And she said, but, but please tell me, tell me what your name is so I can tell him. Yeah, I think the, my mother suffers from the tragedy of a responsible a woman bearing an irresponsible son, you know, it's a... I, 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 can, I can imagine, because I think I, I had in my mother someone like that as well. But, you know, we, we learned a lot growing up that one, one always had to ask people, you know, who was calling. And we, we, I grew up mainly speaking French, so you would tell people, à qui ai-je l'honneur? Who, who do I have the honor of speaking with? I think these kinds of ways of talking have long been lost. Yeah, but, but apparently my mother had kind of traced your upbringing because the first thing she said about you was that you were very polite. Well, you know, this is, this is a middle Europa my, my parents grew up with. I think the Vienna of my parents carries through. Edgar, what am I interrupting now apart the fact that your mother called to find out where you were? What are you, what are you up to I these days? I was just waiting for you. I was answering the unimportant emails and waiting for you. And, and what, are you, what are you in the middle of, of doing these days? Well, I'm working with my wife on a TV series uh, for the French uh, channel Arte. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a series about a, a real estate agent who can travel in time. And it's a, it's a drama. It's very much based uh, on my personal life. Uh, when I've lost my father, he had left my mother some uh, small part of a, a real estate uh, a piece, you know, of a building that apparently this building was falling down and 
with a bunch of problems and you know and I was totally uh, I didn't have the qualification to deal with them but being thrown into them I, I suddenly met all kinds of people who were trying you know to, to cheat me or, or I don't know to to trick me but at the same time had known my father from a totally different angle so this kind of a connection between a cutthroat real estate business and a very heartwarming uh, nostalgia kind of made me want to write the story about this real estate agent who can travel in time and kind of by moving in time he also deals with his unsolved past right and so the 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 nostalgia is a nostalgia for what do you think well i think that you know when whenever you you go to to a building that carries some kind of personal history for you and you see that with the years this building had changed, you know, then there is something that stays in you. I remember that the first time I've, I went to Poland, my mother gave me the address of uh, the house in which she was born. And when I came there, to that address, I saw that there was a bank there. And I was kind of walking through the bank and I was trying to imagine, you know, my grandmother, uh, in labor, trying to have my mother, and I couldn't. And then I uh, went back to the hotel, and that night I, I had this this uh, dream that uh, I was in the same bank, and my my mother was being born there, and I was at, the, at that place, you know. And basically, I'm seeing it through the the cashier's glass, you know, from the wrong side, you know. <laughs> and I see my mother in labor, and of course, nothing made sense because she looked much older. My grandmother looked uh, much older than she really was, and it was based, you know, on some kind of pictures that I saw. But uh, but this idea of kind of being in a space that had some kind of personal history, but seeing how much this space had changed and does not remember all those things that are important for you, I guess, I don't know. I, l I love the notion, Edgar, that you just mentioned of a space that does not remember, as if as if the space itself had a memory. And, and it brings up many things in, in my mind. And I think in, in The Seven Good Years, you, you write about that trip uh, back to, to Poland and, and back to, to, to the very places where your mother grew up. Um, I, I know that when, when I was about uh, 18, I, I asked my father for a trip back to Vienna, where he had grown up. And at that point, I hadn't read a book that m made a huge Im impact on me later by a, a French historian called uh, uh, La Mémoire Collective, Collective Memory, where he talks about neighborhoods that feel, uh, that lose their memory because the inhabitants are either killed or disappear. So what the what the neighborhood remembers in a way disappears with its inhabitants. But I remember with my father, I visited the places of his childhood in Vienna uh, before the Second World War. He left just in time and spent the war years in Haiti. And we went and he showed me places where he had lived, places he had gone to. And after about a week, Edgar, I felt more and more depressed because everything he showed me with his index finger, he indicated places, was gone. And I told him, and I, didn't, I don't think I used the word depressed, but I, I probably spoke about a sadness or a melancholia I felt. And he said, but 
but I don't feel that at all. Um, you know, I'm here to tell the story. You know, it might have disappeared. Correct. Right. Yeah, but, but, but you know, but I think that, that that's the thing that we have two notions because, you know, there is your father telling the story, imagining things, sharing it with you. And there is some kind of, let's say, a materialistic, pragmatic sensibility, which for me is very, is very much kind, kind of embolized in real estate people. Because when a real estate, a state guy comes to a place, he doesn't care about the emotions and the story the place has. He just wants to understand how much money he can make out of it. So I think that this clash between kind of being focused in the past and being focused only in the future kind of provides a good conflict. You know, I hope it will. It's yeah, and and this will be this will be a, a a feature film of some sort. Oh no no, it will be a TV series uh, made out of either four or six episodes. It depends how long it will take to tell the story. And and you're in the middle of working on this with your with your wife, with whom you have worked before on on uh, on television series. And we've made a feature film together called. Uh, Jellyfish, I mean. right? And uh, and yeah, and we we often collaborate, you know, as writers and as directors. And and do you find that that writing for for television or writing a feature film is something that complements the work you do as a fiction writer? I think that uh, it has uh, advantages and disadvantages because, to be honest, you know, to write fiction is the thing that is most natural for me uh, but at the same time it's very lonely and what I really like about writing for films or for TV is that it's a, a collaborative act you know that you work together with people and you try to imagine it with them and and with me I think that the right balance for me is to have a book project and then another project that involves working with other people because I couldn't imagine myself for my entire life you know sitting in a room and just writing and publishing and writing and publishing. I need to interact with people and to experiment with things that I haven't done before. You need to be with other people, not not alone. In I think that without that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have much to write about. I think that often like, I can go and make a film or take care of my mother's uh, real estate inheritance, but by doing so I and interacting with people and feeling for them and fighting with them and agreeing and disagreeing with them, I, you know, it's basically what would make my next story collection, you know, this is where where the ideas and emotions come from. And I must right. say, I must say, Edgar, I just, I just read um, The Seven Good Years and it it really touched me quite, quite deeply, the, the way in which you have of, of, bringing together some extremely funny experiences, but also some extremely difficult experiences, particularly the, the death of your father. And I'm, I'm wondering, was that what prompted the memoir in, in as something you had to do? Yes, I must say that, you know, that uh, as a reader, uh, I've always preferred fiction to nonfiction. And when it come, came to nonfiction, I've never read memoirs. I totally distrust memoirs, and I must say that before writing one, I thought it was a totally redundant form. 
Because for me, you know, when you want to know what had really happened, the last person you should ask, you know, it's the, the guy who, who plays the main role in those incidents. You know, you, always, you will always say something that is not only subjective, but I think to your subconscious tries to justify actions that you've made or to make you look better. So, so I would have never imagined that I would write a memoir. And even when I started to write those number of graphical uh, pieces, which were more like a diary, you know, and yeah. I started to write documenting the birth of my son and him growing up, I never thought it would turn into a book, but when my father was analyzed, you know, as uh, terminally ill, and I started writing about him, I realized at some point that for my, my father, his greatest dream uh, during the Second World War was to survive it and to have a family and to have children. This was his goal. And, you know, and for, for us, you know, me and my, my siblings, we always had this kind of feeling that when he looked at us, he was already happy. You know, we could be bank robbers, you know, we could be bums. But he had made it. He had made his family. He played the role of a father. He did what he, he had dreamed on doing. So I thought that writing this book, it's, it would be some kind of a literary tombstone. You know, it's a little bit like when you're a kid and you want to say to other kids, you know, my father is stronger than your father. Then my, this book is to say, look what an amazing guy was my dad. And and that that passage in in uh, the seven good years where he discovers how ill he is, and you discover it with him, it it's amazing to to what extent it it's consonant with what you just said. He was a a true a true realist in that sense. He he believed he his life was was full the way he had lived it and even if he had to be operated it still would carry that kind of flame well my father always said that, that, that experiencing the holocaust had made him an optimist because he said when i grew up the bar was set so low i thought so little about humanity you know that since the war i've been surprised for the better and I think that in a strange way, the terrible experiences that he had been through had kind of made him actually uh, rejoice every time he saw some uh, human spirit or human kindness and believe that, you know, that you can kind of climb up, uh, out of any peephole that you fall into. And uh, and I guess that you, that you know that uh, when we would, discussed the Holocaust, and you know, in Israel, many times they talk about the lesson of the Holocaust, which right. times can be reduced to that, you know, Israel has to be strong, so it won't be victimized again. Then my my father would always say, you know, that the Holocaust was something so terrible that it's impossible that you can learn only one lesson from it. There are many lessons to be learned, and I think that his lessons were very Hasidic, you know, I think that he was able somehow to tap into humanity in a way that that I always try when I write, but I I feel that I don't even get close, you know, to his really belief in humanity and his ability to to enjoy life and be a part of life and his uh, and his trust in mankind, you know, which when you think about, you know, somebody that his sister was uh, caught and tortured to death. Uh, you know, during the wars, and you would think that, you know, the people should, wouldn't have such a great belief in the, the human spirit. But when 
when I would say that to my dad, he said, yeah, but you know, they tortured her to death and she didn't tell them where I was hiding. So, so he always saw, he always saw, yeah, well, he always, he, yes, exactly. And he always saw something, something positive and even what was bleakest. And in, in that way, Edgar, I'm not even, I wasn't even aware of, of the, the, perhaps the similarities. I often say that my father was one of the only intelligent optimists I've met, you know, after, uh, you know, at the age of, of 92, when people would ask him when he would retire, he said, I'm too old to retire. And he, you know, and he just continued with that extraordinary spirit. And hearing you uh, now talk about him in that way, I wonder if, if it m might at all be right that you're, you're writing for the dream of your father. For sure, you know, I remember that when I was a, a, a young boy, I had to do some project for school, and I asked my father what was the thing that he was most proud of, and he fought for a little, and, uh, and he said to me, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that since I came to Israel, I fought in five wars, always in the front line, and I've never hurt anybody. And I remember that as a kid, it just really confused me, you know, because if you fight, you want to kill your enemy, you know. But when I grew up and I became a writer, I thought to myself, maybe, you know, maybe I'm doing what my dad was doing. I'm fighting wars without killing anybody, without hurting anybody. And I think that many of the things that I'm trying to do are kind of a, this a, attempt to keep a, his legacy which was always too obscure for me or for my siblings to understand. We never understood what our parents wanted us to be. We just understood that they didn't want us to be rich. And I guess in a sense, they wanted us to transcend our material, material existence, but we never knew what they wanted us to be. But when I became a writer, I saw how my parents, may, how my parents were happy with that. Did they, did they push you at all to do anything in particular? Well, yeah, they wanted me to have a pragmatic profession because oh, this was kind of a lesson of the Holocaust that if you're able to do something well, then you have better chances to survive. And I was actually, I started uh, studying uh, engineering and later computer and math, which was supposed to be kind of the pragmatic side. But uh, with my writing, I find myself kind of being dragged more and more toward more humanistic studies. And at that stage, you know, my parents had already realized that I found what I wanted to do, so they didn't force me. And then, and then and then quite recently you you became a father and you you look at the potentiality of your children, you look at what they what they might be able to do and you already see a fully a fully um, potentially uh, ambitious person in in the baby, and you describe that so beautifully and and to some extent comically as always in the seven good years. And I'm wondering, as they grow older, um, what w will you try to 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 direct the course, and how does one? If one doesn't direct it, how does one keep oneself from wishing something in particular for one's children? Well, I, 
I don't think that I, I try to influence uh, uh, my son too much about anything except what I would say kind of moral issue or or kind of humanistic issues. You know, I, I try to teach him not to be an asshole, you know, <laughs> uh, which is not always easy. But but whatever he wants to, to do, you know, we, we had this very funny discussion because when he was younger, he once told me that he has a professional dilemma. I think he was five at the time, that he they haven't decided yet if he wants to become an astronaut or a taxi driver. And I said to him, why would you want to become a, an astronaut? And he said, because I think it's great to, to reach a place no human being had reached before. And I said to him, why would you want to be a taxi driver? And he said, oh, because they make shitloads of money. And I said to him, yeah, but you know, but you can make money in other ways. You know, you should look for what you like and enjoy and make money this way. Look at me. I like writing stories and I make money from writing stories. And he said, yes, father, but not as much as a taxi driver. <laughs> And uh, I said to him, but you must understand that when you work, you get from your work something more than money. You know, for example, a, a judge earns people a respect, a doctor earns a gratitude. And he said to me, and what does a writer get, you know? And I said to him, well, you, from my experience, you get a lot of love. People that had read your work, they come and they give you a lot of love and compassion and emotion. And he looked at me and like, and he, again, you know, he was in kindergarten at the time. He said, you know what, Father, I think you found yourself a great job. Oh, Edgar, it, it, it nearly brings tears to my eyes. It's a, such a wonderful, wonderful story. I think, I mean, I, I, I can't resist to ask you to, to perhaps read the beginning of the seven good years so that people overhearing our our conversation now might might hear how you... You express the birth of your of your son. Uh, yeah, I I try and read it. I I, I, I you read, don't read that well in, in English. You you read you read as much or as little as you want, but it will be wonderful to to hear to hear your your words as written. So uh, the first chapter is called "Suddenly the Same Thing." I just hate terrorist attacks, the thin nurse says to the older one. Want some gum? The older nurse takes a piece and nods. What can you do, she says. I also hate emergencies. It's not the emergencies, the thin one insists. I have no problem with accidents and things. It's the terrorist attacks. I'm telling you, they put a damper on everything. Sitting on the bench outside the maternity ward, I think to myself, she's got a point. I got here just an hour ago, all excited with my wife and a neat freak taxi driver who, when my wife's water broke, was afraid it would ruin his upholstery. And now I'm sitting in the hallway feeling gloom, waiting for the staff to come back from the ER. Everyone but the two nurses have gone to help treat the people injured in the attack. My wife's contractions have slowed down too. Probably even the baby feels this whole getting born thing isn't that urgent anymore. It's, um... Well, we, we have a taxi here. <laughs> I'm a poor driver, so I, I ride taxis all the time. 
And no wonder it, it was passed, passed to, to your son as an ambition. The Other People with Brad Listy podcast is a free weekly program featuring in-depth, inappropriate interviews with today's leading authors. You can hear me in conversation with everybody from George Saunders to Cheryl Strayed to Hilton Niles, Susan Orlean, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Franzen, Maggie Nelson, Brett Easton Ellis, Otessa Moshfeg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and the entire archive is available for free. That's hundreds of conversations with great writers, uncensored. Go get it. Visit otherppl.com and follow the show on Twitter at OtherPPL.